Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. I'm really excited for today's episode because we have one of my favorite writers on. In fact, he's many travelers' favorite writers. His name is Rolf Potts. You you may know him from his iconic book, Vagabonding. And now he's taken the concept of what he was doing back then to a different level with a new book called The Vagabond's Way, 366 Meditations on Wanderlust, Discovery, and the Art of Travel. Hey, Rolf, welcome back to the Fromer Travel Show. It's good to talk to you, Pauline. So this is an unusual book. And I I have to say, I love the mind space that it gets you into. It really is meditations. How do you describe the book when you're, you're talking about it to people who haven't read it yet? Well, in a sense, it's a daily devotional book, um, not not in the religious sense, but sort of in a sense where each day you have one thing to think about uh, for travel. And so in a, in a sense, it walks you through the year uh, in, in the semblance of a journey, from the inspiration and planning of a journey to getting started on the road to sort of pushing your comfort zone and finding new experiences to circling back home and sort of seeing your home as a new destination. And so I, I'm not prescriptive. You don't have to read one page a day for a year. You can, uh, you can dive right in and read it in an afternoon if you want to, but it's designed with sort of a, a density uh, of, of concept and philosophy that each day gives you something to think about as you are either dreaming about travel on the road or coming home from travel. Well, you do actually put the dates with each page. It's one, each page is a one page essay, and there's a date at the top of it, starting with January 1st. But I would think if you got this book in November, you would want to start the January reading in November. And I actually love the idea of doing it a page a day. I think it will color people's days in a really lovely way, whether or not they're on the road. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and it's, it's really designed for a page a day pace. Um, just because there's a lot to think about. There's even stuff to Google. Um, some, some things are about how to sort through the information that is available to you as a traveler, but it's also about sort of making travel intertwine with your life and the attitude of travel and the attention you bring to distant places and bringing that attention, uh, back to your home as well. Um, so yeah, I think if you could, it's designed I mean, in, in a sense, you can start with January 1st on January 1st, but right. it, it, again, it's not prescriptive. You, don't, you, you can read it in reverse order if you want, but um, <laughs> it, I, I'd like to think that you can dip into any page and it'll give you something to think about travel sort of in a way that goes beyond the, the consumerist level of travel and nothing wrong. The, the, the sure. commercial travel industry does a lot of good things for us, but I think that there's a level of travel at which you're really thinking about place and other cultures and stretching your comfort zone and sort of being inspired in your own life by travel. And that's really, those are the concepts that I try to embrace in the new book. Well, it's interesting that you say that the commercial travel industry gives us a lot because there are some definite, I wouldn't say screeds, but some objections raised in this book 
to places that are simply created for travelers. Uh, you give some fascinating history about the Yippies hmm. uh, going to Disneyland. Tell us about tell us that story. I thought that was fascinating and what they were trying to do there and and the issues it raises. Yeah, it, it blew my mind. Um, I I didn't realize it's not a very well known incident, but like I think in 1971, the Yippies, which were sort of an anti authority collective. They infiltrated uh, Disneyland and they took it over. They took over a couple of the rides at, at, at Disneyland. Um, sort of as an anti-authoritarian protest, they were protesting the, the, the emptiness, the superficialness of commercial life in America. And to this day, right. it's the only time Disneyland has ever been closed early. <laughs> Bad weather, you know, accidents, whatever. But it was a bunch of, uh, you know, long-haired uh, hippies who called themselves yippies who actually succeeded in having them close down the park early so that they would they they could herd them out of there. I think there was like 300 yippies there that day. And I love that they were chanting roast a porky pig, even though porky pig is not a Disney character. Right. There's there's something sort of absurd about it. You know, that, that yeah. they were they were really satirizing, you know, sort of the emptiness of that pop culture commercial level of engagement with the world. And so I, as right. I say in the book, that Disneyland has already mastered the built environment that mediates our experience of a place. If you want complete fantasy, go to Disneyland. Whereas right. sometimes we go to other places. I give an example. In the 1970s in Tanzania, government officials were so frustrated by people looking for Tanzanians in traditional clothing, like Maasai-type clothing, that they opened a special village so that tourists would stop looking for Maasai and traditionally dressed Tanzanians <laughs> in, in other villages. And, and the government officials said, it's it may be fake, but it's less of a hassle than tourists asking right. Tanzanians in blue jeans where the real Tanzanians are. And it's like, come on, we're, we're, ta we're, not, we're not a part of your fantasy, but this is Tanzania. I'm sorry, I'm Tanzanian. I'm not, I'm not dressed like a traditional Maasai warrior. So I think we right. carry a lot of fantasies to our travels for, for good reasons and bad. But Disneyland has mastered the fantasy aspect of travel, and it's good to embrace the realistic, nuanced, um, globally connected aspect of travel where we're going beyond our stereotypes. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you, you, you hit on this a couple of times in the course of the book. I, I personally, I'm a person who, who I've never really been able to get into cruising mm. because it's, it's such an artificial atmosphere. It was created by a bunch of you know, technocrats in an office. Uh, what will make us, what will make the throngs the happiest? And, and that sounds really snotty and snobby. And I know a lot of people love cruising and it does get you to many destinations in the course of a week and it's very affordable. But there's something that just gets under my skin about destinations that were simply created to scratch itches rather than destinations that grew organically and say something about the human condition and not just about what people think people want for vacations. Yeah, I, I think um, I think I quote a, a tourist scholar named Dean McCannell that says that there's these tourist environments that are sort of designed to strip us of our money <laughs> and be done yeah. with it. And, <laughs> and, and so in a sense, a cruise, I, I've been on a cruise once and it was fine, but it sort of throws this layer of comfort between you and the places you're going. And so you're, you're eating more and there can be some good uh, food on cruises, but it's fixed on the boat that you're really not fully away from home. It's like, it's like you're on this beautiful shopping mall that's floating in, in the sea. And 
and you are traveling in a sense in that you're physically away from home, but so much comfort is built as this bulwark between you and, and the, um, the place you're visiting. And so, again, I don't want to knock the commercial travel industry too much, but really through these comforts, they create a bubble wherein we have the comforts of home in such a way that we're not fully in the place we've come so far to visit. And so I'm a big right. champion of independent travel. And it's like, well, there's a local economy. You, you don't have to eat the Italian meal in Italy in your nice five-star hotel. You can go up the street and, and uh, use your, your phrase book or your half-baked Italian or, or simple English and order a meal that in a restaurant that's full of Italians. Uh, and that's just one example right. of many. I think food is a great example. In fact, I, I, we talk about crowdsourcing. Uh, food recommendations. I did that in in Sumatra, in Bukutini, Sumatra once. And I realized that I went to this restaurant, which was fine, but I walked through the market full of Bukutini natives. And so instead of looking for a crowd, I crowdsourced and I got a a so-so meal when in fact I should have just followed my eyes and my nose to this market where Bukutini people were having the time of their lives eating dinner. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you also talk about the importance of slowing down. I was looking, you know, that this uh, this podcast will debut on I think it's October sixteenth. But the but the uh, episode I really loved was for October fifteenth, where you ex- you talk about explore the art of lingering in the places you love, and mm. you, you talk about that there was this Korean Swiss philosopher, and I'm going to mangle the name Byung Chul Han. Uh, who argued that modern life has compelled us to throw ourselves into the vita activa, the active life, which is ultimately less fulfilling than an equally intentional embrace of the vita contemplative, the contemplative life. And he wrote, the idea of accelerating life for its maximization is wrong. Uh, And you, you talk that when you, I'm going to quote you to yourself, mm-hmm. uh, the best parts of travel comes in those moments when you give yourself permission to stop in a place that captures your imagination and get to know it a little better, devoid of goals, itineraries, and hypothetical regrets. What are the hypothetical regrets, do you think? Well, again, when, when we see the world as this menu of options, when we see it in that consumer mindset, then we're sort of setting ourselves up to be disappointed. We're sort of evaluating a journey in the same sense we would evaluate a pair of running shoes or hmm. a, a piece of kitchen equipment. Um, when in fact, and I think I, I, Byung-Chul Han, whose who's work I'm pretty recently familiar with, his philosophy applies so much to travel. He basically says that it's the duration of experience, not the number of experiences that make a life, life meaningful. And so I think often- What was the first word you said? The iteration of experience? The, uh, or? Du- duration. Duration, duration. Is, okay. is, is more important than instances. And so I think hmm. we often travel, you know, I, I use the term bucket list. A bucket list is a useful thing in part because it gets you out the door. But right. oftentimes we clutter our travels with so many activities and so many things to be checked off that we forget that part of the joy of travel is savoring these moments. It is going to a meal in Europe, like in Italy or France, where you don't aren't rushed out of the restaurant in 30 minutes, that yeah. it stretches out into the afternoon. And basically, one great way to experience Italy or France is to savor a lunch for three hours instead of sprinting off to the museum or festival on your checklist. And so I think that's something Mm -hmm. we forget. We sort of see travel as this exciting menu of options. uh, And we try to eat them all instead of savoring one meal, one food, uh, literally and metaphorically. And so I really think a lot of the joy of travel comes in, in thinking, 
wow, I've traveled to this distant place and I am so engaged with all five senses and I'm so happy to be here. And instead of rushing off to the next point on your itinerary, I think part of the happiness of travel really comes on in savoring these moments and slowing down. Yeah, well, slowing down sometimes just happens when you travel. You talk about in the book, you talk about how our, our, what's the word, our experience of time can be very, very different when we're in a new place. How is it different? You know, I think neurologically, novelty is something that slows down time a little bit. Um, that, that when things are new, your brain is processing things in a different way. So in a certain sense, you're experiencing time in a richer way for, for reasons that are good and bad. You know, I, I, I quote Jeff Greenwald in the book uh, about the experience of Nepal, where a, a morning can seem to stretch across days because you're not really yeah. hemmed in by a schedule in a place like Nepal. You can, you can wander around and just sort of follow your fancy for a while. I also quote Eddie L. Harris in West Africa, where basically he makes peace with time. You know, in the U.S., we have bus schedules and train schedules and ferry schedules. In West Africa, Eddie f- discovered that they're less beholden to schedules. Things happen when they happen. And if you don't accept time in that way, then you're sort of super, you're sort of missing out on the way time is experienced in a place like West Africa. And I also quote Paul through who says travel, sometimes it feels like the years of travel are not deducted from your life. You're sort of in a special space time-wise. Yeah. Um, And I think savoring and slowing that time, having it slow down for you is really part of the joy of things. It's why I think people should really put down their smartphones and really immerse themselves in the environment where they are because it's a, it's a gift, absolutely a gift of travel. Yeah. And I love that in, in addition to writing, you're also a teacher. You take people to Paris every year uh, and do a writing workshop there and you force the writers to sit and sketch something, uh, which a lot of them rebel against at mm. first. You know, they, they don't feel that they're artists, but why does that help a travel writer? Well, in a way, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of seeing. And it seems a little strange to sit down and sketch a, a, a picture of a plaza that you could take a picture of with your smartphone in a microsecond. But this is an old tourist ritual. And in fact, before the invention of the camera, tourist guidebooks would uh, tell you where to go for scenic viewpoints where you could take out your sketchbook and draw. And so before there were cameras, people carried sketchbooks just as a natural part of their travel kit. I think what happens mm. when my students are sitting you know, in a place like the Tuileries in Paris and sketching something, it forces them to pay a special kind of attention. It's, it's one thing, um, you know, to look at an obelisk and take a picture of it, but it's another thing to spend an hour trying to, to get uh, the, its perspectives and its shadows in a certain way. And what I found is that because my students pay so much attention to a place that people would otherwise just take a picture of and move on, other travelers come and sort of stand close to them, try to figure out what they're doing. They're, they're sort of huh. drawing the picture in public turns you into a tourist attraction because you are paying an <laughs> uncommon amount of attention to something. And people are very curious about that. People, you're basically advertising this view is important and I'm going to, I'm going to draw. I think some of my students feel self-conscious because they don't consider themselves good artists, but it really is funny to see how sometimes students can attract a crowd simply by their attention to a place that other people would just take a picture of and move on. Yeah, yeah, interesting. You also talk about what destinations draw people and that perhaps it's time to look beyond the famous cities and major resorts. Why? Well, I think it's there's a couple words you can use. One is over tourism. 
and sure. and and two is we have this phrase getting off the beaten path. I I I, I talk about it in the in the book about how the beaten path is beaten for good reason. You know, the beaten path is yeah. famous places. I talk about desire trails that uh, different academics have found that if you uh, if you resod a campus uh, quad that uh, basically there's these little trails that go between the, it's basically the most desirable trail between two points on the campus. Well, that happens with travelers too. We go to places where other travelers have gone. We go with places with good art and good food. But getting off those trails allows us to basically wander into those places that haven't been prepared for our consumption, that are more authentic to the place that we're in, and aren't really places that are created for travelers and tourists, but places that are just that serve the people who live there. And oftentimes, the experience of a place through the eyes of people who live there is fun. You know, my sister went to Moldova, which is not a popular place to go to. She had a former student no. who lived there, and she found quite counterintuitively that the Moldovans she was with were obsessed with soup and salad. And so her window <laughs> through Moldova was through eating and pr through preparing these very specific soups, which Moldovans were very passionate about and would argue about as they fixed them. And to this day, um, she can't eat, she can't have a bowl of soup without thinking of Moldova. And it was really mm. fun to, for her to see Moldova, not through the lens of what the tourist attractions are, but through these very passionate Moldovans who loved soup and thought it was important that she should eat that soup. And so I think once you're off the obvious tourist trail of a place, you can really use any lens to fall in love with the place. Right, right. Absolutely. That's fascinating. The only thing I, I know about Moldova is that it's constantly on lists of the world's unhappiest places that aren't at war. Yeah. I, it's, it's usually seen through that lens, but she, she liked it. Yeah. Eric Weiner, who's a terrific travel writer and who I quote in the book. I love him. Yeah, yeah. He he. In his book about happiness, he actually he declares it the least happy country in the world, right? Yet I think so. Yeah, yet, and and I think sometimes these places that by reputation are not very sexy places, and I include my own home state of Kansas, which is not on any top ten list. I have a fondness for places where you're not supposed to go, or that have a, a certain reputation for not necessarily being the hottest air quote hottest place in the world. And so for my sister, it was really I think. Uh, very charming for her to just be interacting with this Moldovans for whom uh, soup, soups and salads were very important. And so in a sense, she, she came to understand agriculture in that part of the world and the food was very great. And so hmm. I think if you allow yourself to just be curious, you know, instead of following yeah. uh, information, following your curiosity, your five senses is a really great way to engage in a place, even if it's not in the, on the top 10 list of where you should be going in a place. Right. Though, you know, you do you do give a nod to those of us who do do top tens for a living. Mm. Uh, you talk a little bit about guidebooks and how they can contextualize what you're seeing. And I was very grateful for that mm. kind nod. Yeah, well, I, I think guidebooks... Um, when I came of age, guidebook, that was the thing, you know, you, you, the guidebook was sure. your window into a place. Well, now it's sort of, it's sort of diffused a little bit and you can use your phone, you can use websites, you can use Wikipedia to help you go through a place. But one thing I love about guidebooks is that everything is in one place. You have one bit of, and there's actually cultural and ethical information in guidebooks that you're not going to find yeah. if you're just going from top 10 list to top 10 list on your phone, right? Um, sure. Guidebooks helps you understand why things are a little bit different in Egypt or in Italy or in Peru than it might be back home. And so I think 
Yeah, I, I, I think I'll always be fond of guidebooks uh, because, um, you know, I think I use them a, a lot when I was first a traveler. And I go back to them again and again and again because they're a great window into the place um, before and during your travel experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no man is an island, even when he's going to islands. And there were some fascinating discussions in your book about how different types of travel companions or a lack of travel companions can shape your trip. I loved your thoughts on how traveling with your parents Mm. actually opened doors for you in many places. Can you talk about that? I can. And it ties into the idea of of curiosity as a travel tool rather than expertise. And my parents are are Kansas school teachers and didn't really have passports until their son talked them into visiting Asia. (laughs) But I traveled with them in China, and it was great for a couple of reasons. One was was their innate curiosity, that they weren't experts on Chinese culture, but they were curious about everything. And two, because at the time they were in their 60s, their hair was a little bit gray. Well, Chinese culture has a lot of respect for older generations of people, and they're not used oh. to seeing gray-haired Americans wandering through you know, a random street in their town. And so in a way that I couldn't, they attracted curiosity and, and sort of open-hearted interest in a way that I, as sort of a, a dirtbag backpacker in his late 20s, couldn't. <laughs> but then also, like, right. we went to the Natural History Museum. This was 20 years ago. We went to a Natural History Museum in Beijing, and it was still a little frumpy. I'm sure that it's been fixed up, you know, in, in the time that China has become much wealthier in the time since then. But sure, what my parents, as both of them teach a lot of science uh, when they were teachers, they were just curious about everything. They, there were no English language captions, but they used their own interest in American natural history museums to really enter this imaginative space. And it was funny that in a sense, the parental role was reversed, that they had the imagination and excitement of children for a landscape that they didn't understand. Whereas I, huh. ostensibly their, their guide, their parent, their air quotes expert, uh, I was sort of humbled by their 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 pure curiosity and willingness to make mistakes allowed them to really throw themselves into this new culture in a way that I found instructive. Yeah. And also, and correct me if I'm wrong, it, it seemed to be also that you traveling as a family unit made you more relatable hmm. uh, to the Chinese folks that you met. I mean, that's what I took from it as well. Yeah. And I think sometimes we forget we're so individualist in the United States that often you'll travel in Asia and they'll ask you your age and marital status early on. And I remember being yeah. in my late 20s and I'd say, oh, no, I'm single. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, like family is so <laughs> important in a place like Asia that it feels like, oh, this guy, this poor guy is almost 30 and he's not married. What's what's poor guy can't find a, a spouse, you know? And so I think we forget sometimes how that basic unit of family is such an important part of everywhere in the world. And that family is a value everywhere in the world. And so if you're traveling with your family, if you're traveling as a family unit, it automatically creates a pretext for which people to engage with you. And I mean, traveling with kids right. is great, you know, that people, every, people oh, everywhere absolutely. in the world love, love kids. And they, even without a common language, you can, you can sort of relate to people's kids. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I think it's easy to forget sometimes, you know, being steely solo travelers, how, joyful it can be not just for you but for your host community to engage you as a family because that's a really relatable human texture 
Yeah, people thought I was crazy when I took my then uh, 10-month-old daughter to Japan. Mm. But it opened so many doors. I mean, people wanted to engage with her. I married a redhead, so she was blonde at the time, which I mm. think also was uh, you know, not something they saw that much. But in markets, people wanted to give her little treats, and we got invited places. It was really just wonderful. There were a couple restaurants that wouldn't let us in with the baby. Mm. Uh, but for the most part, it, it really was amazing. Well, let's talk about those steely solo travelers, because you have a lot of advice in the book about what it means to be alone out in the world and how this can be a blessing rather than something to feel embarrassed about. Yeah, I'm a big fan of solo travel. And um, I think even if you travel with loved ones, with a family or a partner, you can split up at various points during a given journey, during a given day, and experience things individually, and then come back at the end of the day and compare notes and compare excitement and compare photos, right? So I think I, I'm, I'm a big fond, I'm a big fan of solo traveler, but that doesn't mean that you have to tra travel solo all the time, uh, that you can travel with a companion and mix solo with... Um, with more companionable travel. But I think traveling alone really opens you up, makes you vulnerable to places. I think sometimes a travel companions can sort of create a social bubble where your default is to talk with your companions, where you're, yeah. you have a slight edge of loneliness when you're alone. And I'm an introvert and I don't usually seek out people, but I sure do when I, when I uh, travel because I'm sort of working against that edge of loneliness and well, I want to interact with people. And so- hmm. Solo travel, it really can be a way of breaking out of those bubbles that you would otherwise put yourself into. And I, I quote the journalist Stephanie Rosenblum, who wrote a book about solo travel called Alone Time. And she talks about Great how- book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she, she talks about, she talks about researchers that you actually interact with art in museums more fully when you're alone. You know, yeah. that the, the, the neurological process of seeing this new place, that walking in the street alone is a different experience than walking with a companion. You're more likely to go in a new direction and be more spontaneous when you're alone. And then at restaurants, um, you know, nobody wants to be, everybody has bad memories of being, the, eating alone in the lunchroom when you're in junior high, right? Eating alone <laughs> yeah. can be a, a stigma, but actually eating alone in another culture, it allows you to eat slowly and to focus your attention on the street and the food and the cultural differences. And so there really are some, some benefits of traveling alone. And I encourage people, even though, uh, as we just said, tra family travel can be amazing, finding time to travel alone, even on a trip with companions, can really make you vulnerable to a place that makes travel really memorable. No, absolutely. Absolutely. But there are people probably listening to this who are going to say, I'm scared of going to certain places in the world. I think right now, especially after this damn pandemic, where so many of us were so isolated and we have so many different sources of information, of news, some of which I think are, are predicated on fear mongering. Mm. Um, what do you say to people who are scared of traveling, who, who, who think you're nuts to be spending so much time out on the road? Well, I think so much of how we, our news these days is, it's really low on the brainstem, you know, that, that the algorithms mm. um, really are tapping into our, our hardwired human fears in a way that's not healthy for us. And so I think if you, if you stay, basically we're surrounded by this information and if it's only the clickbait information that makes us scared, maybe we should exhale slowly and do some research and find out, are there bloggers in the country that I want to go to? 
Are there people hmm. who, are, who are about my age or my own nationality or ethnicity who are traveling? And I think so many people are doing it that it doesn't take long to reassure ourselves that it's not crazy to go to a place. And I think almost any place in the world is going to be um, gentler and more interesting than you thought. Just as my sister went to Moldova and, and found these people who are passionate about food, um, you can go to almost any place where you know, supposedly it's a little bit dangerous or a little bit provincial, right. like my home state of Kansas. And I think it's never, it's good to be cautious, but no place is ever as dangerous as the algorithm would make you feel it does. And so I think sure. just, just gently and confidently, carefully, but, but open-heartedly embracing the world, it, it rewards it in almost every case that fear, fears are understandable, but they're also it's good to patiently push back against those fears with information and confidence and optimism. Do you suggest that those people maybe try and reach out to friends of friends or put, or I don't know, follow their interests. Maybe they're into birding so they can mm -hmm. find local birders or, I mean, what are the structures that people can put into place uh, so that they're, they're not just, going and saying, I'll, I'm just not going to be scared, they actually can feel like they're doing something that will make them safer. Yeah. Well, I, I talk in the book about how birders and surfers are some of the happiest travelers I've met on the road because they're they're <laughs> obsessives. Like the, the, the surfers are learning Bahasa Indonesia so they can find the best waves, you know, and the birders, they, huh. they will see things in the trees that I couldn't see if I stared for 20 minutes. You know, they're very attuned to the attention of the travel. And I also talk in the book that I went to Cuba and the Dominican Republic to learn Latin dance. And I, I was a very mediocre dancer, but I met some friends in Cuba who also were into bagpipes, the Spanish Asturian Celtic bagpipes. Wow. And it was through an obsession that I was bad at that I found another obsession that I was bad at. I was never became a good bagpiper, but it allowed me a window into Cuba and these young, very hip Cubans who loved bagpipes. And so one, one focus led to another focus. And I think if you, if you can travel confident, be, like if you, you can go to a place for a cooking class or right. take Muay Thai in Thailand, and that organized activity allows you to accidentally find things in that place that you would never find had you just been searching for it online at home. That basically these interests and passions and comforts or you know comfortable activities, they open the door for us to find things that by accident, that we these wonderful things that we could never have planned for because they catch us by serendipitous surprise as bagpipes did for me in Cuba. <laughs> I never thought we would be talking about bagpipes in Cuba of all places. That is fascinating and hysterical. Uh, well, it's always such a delight speaking with you and more of a delight, uh, well, or an equal delight reading you, Rolf. The bag, the vagabond's way is 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 quite the accomplishment. It's it's a really really wonderful book. So many many congratulations. I'm going to give it to my my daughter. She's on the road with her rock band. In fact, oh, listeners to this podcast hear hear it. But I I think that this will make her wanderings better and, and all of our listeners' wanderings better too. Thank you so much, Rolf. Well, Pauline, it's always fun to talk. It always is. And Yes, absolutely. And that's it for this week's podcast. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage.
watching K. <laughs>